0: Hi again, friends. Thanks for tuning in to the Seconds Flat Running Podcast. Two-time Olympian, six-time U.S. champion, and treadmill mile world record holder, Anthony Familetti, joins the show this week. Fam provides a unique and thoughtful perspective on what makes running special and how it can be a vehicle for a balanced, positive, successful lifestyle. This was one of my favorite interviews yet. In our wide-ranging conversation, Anthony reveals the raw emotion of a 2020 filled with heartache and shares sound advice for the mental aspects of racing. Have you ever noticed that flow state performances occur when you relax rather than strain? Fam expounds on those experiences. Plus, he gives you some tips for treadmill training. And who doesn't want to hear a story about running a sub-four mile with a dog? Thanks to our friends at Skechers for helping make this episode possible. Fam's go-to, the Razor 3, has been one of our favorite shoes of recent years. And the new Razor Elite gives you a similar ride, but with lighter weight and a carbon fiber four-foot plate for race day. Check out the Skechers Performance daily training and racing line at Run-In. Now here's Anthony Famoletti on mile 67 of Seconds Flat. Anthony Familetti, welcome into Seconds Flat. Great to have you. Merry Christmas. Thanks for having me. Merry Christmas. I appreciate, appreciate
1: you giving me a shot to be on the podcast. I've, I've been a big fan.
0: Oh, well, thank you. It's, it's our pleasure. I know the holidays are really different this year, but what are some of uh, your family's traditions this time of year?
1: Well, we've always gotten the real Christmas tree, Yeah, but my wife is not a fan of the real Christmas tree, so we, we've had a fake one. So I think I'm going to sneak in a real one in addition to the fake one. That, I mean, that's obviously everyone's tradition to get a Christmas tree, but we, don't, really, we really don't have a lot of tradition other than buying a ton of presents. Like, <laughs> my, my father would do amazing stuff. Like my brother was almost 10 years older than me. So, you know, he'd, he'd almost be like a dad, give me stuff too. So I got like a, a full half pipe one year that they built for me, um, like a six foot tall half pipe. Uh, I got the entire GI Joe air shuttle set that was like took up my whole room like it was Christmas was it and so this year for my son and nephew I've gone like full tilt with the presents but being COVID year and so difficult I figured you know if you're gonna have fun any Christmas to go overboard this would be the year to do it I've got the okay from the wife to go a little overboard
0: you mentioned the pipe. were you into like skateboarding or inline skating or what'd you do? Oh, I, I love, I
1: love skating. Um, here, let me show you. Here's my son's deck. Oh, very nice. <laughs> He's got, got the SpongeBob uh, grip tape on there. So I, I skated before I ran and I was really into skating because I tried soccer. I tried the other sports and I didn't like that if the kids didn't pass the ball to you or you didn't get chosen to hit in the lineup or you were put out in outfield, you didn't really get to play and engage. So skateboarding was very individual. What you put in was what you got out. And it was before I understood running. And running is very similar in that way. The time and energy that you put in, you get out. But what I tell a lot of kids that I coach, what you got a lot from skateboarding, you don't get in running, is you fail first in skateboarding before you succeed. So you have to learn a trick 100, 200 times and mess it up, mess it up, mess it up until you refine it, refine it, refine it, and you get it. And then once you have it, you've pretty much got it. But it takes a long time, and some of these tricks are very complicated, like a kick flip or hard flips or different things like that. so with running, I think a lot of us have expectations to be good right away, and if we're not good right away, that we're not a good runner and I've learned the opposite is true. A lot of people can be great runners or at least get a lot out of it personally if they just stick with it for a long time.
0: Yeah, that's a great connection, and we talk so often on here just about the power of consistency but you mentioning just failing at that same trick over and over. I've done a lot of reading on high-level elite athletes in sports like diving or figure skating. They constantly practice the skill that they don't have rather than honing the one that they already know well. They want to go for that, that jump that they've never been able to accomplish, and they'll spend hours on it, running connection there. Is there a skill that you work with athletes that you coach or maybe in your own career as well? I know you were self-coached for, for a good amount of time that you really wanted to master, to add to your repertoire as a runner.
1: Well, I joked to the kids I coached that I was going to write a book called master faster. <laughs> <laughs> it's like how, how, how you master getting faster, but as a master's runner, yeah. you're a faster master. Uh, Cause I didn't have any anticipation of, of, running at a high level this far into like when I was 18 19 20 I thought 25 was an old man you know 30 years old was really old and I'm 42 now it's like shocking to me that I'm still running and having fun doing it um so I think you know what I tried to do with running was a personal mastery not so much a specific skill or um you know performance time because I found that if you if you can master that voice in your head and that feeling in your body that wants to pull back when you're really pushing for that high level performance, or you're, you're committed to a, a personal best or, or winning a race or finishing a certain place. there's always that spot. And it's, it tends to always be the same spot distance wise, whether it's a 5k, 10k, it's usually two thirds through or more um, where you, you just feel like you really need to pull back. And learning to turn that down and lean in and push through that and break through that wall, uh, that translates to great performance, not just you know in any race that you'll do, but personally in business or you know personal relationships and things like that, because everything gets difficult at some point. It's not always easy. And I think the misunderstanding with a lot of runners, <clears throat> whether they're beginner or pro, is that eventually you do it enough, it gets easier and easier, right? And then it's like, you just go out and you win. But that's like you just said, in other sports, like in skateboarding too, you're trying to find that next trick that you can't do, right? So what you're trying to do in running is, well, I was able to do that. Well, let's see if I can break 13 minutes. I ran 13 and 11. And all of a sudden, that 11 seconds is like extremely difficult. And you're, you're brushing up against the greatest runners in world history with the top 0.001%. And I, I joke to the kids that I coach, when I first started, I quit the first day in 10th grade for high school. Uh, it was a three-mile time trial, and I got second to last for the whole team, and I didn't think I was any good. I, I lost the top seniors by five minutes, and it was very difficult. I walked some of it, and I just my perception of what I could do was skewed because I just wasn't in shape, and I hadn't put the work in. So that experience for me was good to get beyond that, to realize, wow. It doesn't matter what you try, whether you're trying to be, you know, uh, a rocket scientist, a theoretical physicist, or, <laughs> you know, uh, like a professional mathematician or whatever, or um, you know, work at SpaceX or be a runner. You can do all those things. Are you willing to put in the time and do the work? Because you may not be good at it right away. You may not be good at it two, three, five years from now. But eventually, that day is going to happen, where you are really good at it. And all right, once you get good at it, are you still going to be interested to want to keep pushing to see how far you can
0: go? Sam, there is so much good stuff there. I want to put a pin in the mental stuff and come back to that a little later. Uh, Let's start with, you've reached that point of excellence now in your career, and Two of the most recent events that people know you for. We were talking before we started recording about your, your nephew knows you for all the YouTube views you've gotten for some of your treadmill runs 355 mile and an 824 two mile on a treadmill just here after age 40. So, first, what sparked those pursuits?
1: Well, having kids, you know, I had a son in 2012, and you know, my my running needed to become secondary. When you want to be a professional racer, all you care about is running, and your entire day is surrounded around being extremely effective in that workout, and then recovering for the next one. So your whole day and universe is centered around these workouts and these race performances. And then when you have a child, it's it's the complete opposite. (laughs) They're the center of the universe. And now everything is secondary. And so like days like today, we had a two hour delay for school with rain and it's just above freezing. So it's freezing rain. And it's not the type of conditions that you wanna go and do full on sprints, right? Plus the track is wet. So it's, you know, pull a muscle or a hamstring. You just don't wanna go out there cause it's cold. And if you do, it's, you know, pretty dangerous. There may be some ice here and there. So I had, you know, limited time where I could run either early morning or late at night. So I couldn't go the warmest part of the day and I said you know if I go at night I won't be able to see anything it'd be even more dangerous so I just started going to the local YMCA after um, you know we were done for the day taking care of the little guy and taking care of business so I would just jump on the treadmill occasionally if it was this cold it originally started in New York City because if you're training in New York there was days it was minus five and that didn't include the wind chill, and you're running around the reservoir in Central Park thinking like what the hell am I doing here (laughs) And a lot of times the track would be closed because uh, Icon Stadium was the closest one to me. And there was a bridge that ran across the, the I think it was the East, uh, East River to get over there. And sometimes the bridge would be up for boats to come through. So I'd have to take a cab up there. Sometimes I'd spend the 40 bucks to take a cab up there because um, I had to go across the bridge and pay the tolls. And if I got there and the stadium was closed, I was just out 40 bucks and then had to run run back home. So I'd start using the treadmill in the local gym And I realized, like, I get a good workout, so I had to get creative because of the conditions of being in New York City. And then when I got down here and I had my son, uh, the YMCA I went to had actually this treadmill that I bought from them. It goes 16 miles per hour. And I was shocked that a local gym had a treadmill that went that fast. So, of course, I had to try it out. (laughs) And I'd get up to the intervals at, like, 15, 16. I'd do it for, like, a minute or so. And then I just told a friend, like, I think I could try to go a full four minutes at sub four because I was in that shape. And if you don't have any race opportunities, you know, there's no indoor track meets at the time. I was like, you know what? I'll just jump, jump on, see if I can do it. And I just barely made it to four minutes and had to slam the stop button and got off, but I pulled it off. But it took, like we were talking about, it took everything I had to, to stay focused and stay on. Like there's in, in running on, you know, regular flat ground, you can back off, you can ease off the pace and then try to surge at the end on the treadmill. You just cannot do that you have to stay on the rhythm of the treadmill. So it's very claustrophobic and it's like a rodeo. It's very intimidating. So I pushed through with those skills I developed over the years. And I just decided to post it again on my birthday when I turned 41, I was like, I'll give it a shot. And it went viral, it was pretty cool. It's really neat because
0: you you talked about how, you know, the treadmill is creating the pace, right? That's somewhat out of your control other than pressing the up and down button on the speed. What's the mechanical difficulty of just safely running 355? Because you watch that video and at the very end, you're ready to just fly off that thing. Talk about the the actual mechanics of that attempt. Okay.
1: So to first to sort of explain a sub four effort on the treadmill, you want to have a 1% incline to try to get close to equivalent outside and you know it's, there's argument it's half percent one percent one and a half percent it's really anyone's guess and it's a lot of time dependent on the treadmill how it runs you know um so when you put the incline which i'll usually start with at one and a half percent you're basically running sub four pace uphill <laughs> mm. which is a lot different on your legs especially your quads as you're going so you generate a different type of fatigue than you would on the regular track second you can't wear spikes so on the track, you you can dig in with your spikes and really pull and get some good you know extra torque when you run. You can't do that on a treadmill, so you have to race in flats. So you have to have the right shoe. That's that's key. And then some treadmills have um, sort of you see the front of that treadmill has like a little can you see it here where it has like a plastic uh, front on there. Yeah. So if if you um, so if if you hit that with your foot and pull, you're not gonna you know, overstep and fall. And as you go faster on the treadmill towards the end where you're really trying to open your stride and stay on, if there's no guard there, the sub, the two mile that I did at the USA triathlon conference was a wood way. And I don't like running on those because there's no front guard. So the belt just goes all the way around with nothing to as a safeguard in the front. So I was literally stepping on the front round part of the treadmill and I nearly broke my ankle a couple of times because I was striding so wide. I have such a wide stride that uh, I nearly overstepped the treadmill a few times. So you have to cut your stride down. Uh, There's a lot of things that you have to change, but really the hardest part is that consistent rhythm with no change whatsoever. So you're basically exact metronome cadence. And so I've used, actually trained a runner on this treadmill yesterday she's coming off of a stress fracture. So she's come back, she just started running again. She wants to run soft surface, but you know, she wants to start doing intervals and it was raining yesterday, so we couldn't go on the wet mushy grass. That'd be just as dangerous as you know, running you know, money potholes or something. So we went on the treadmill where it has a little bit of give to protect underfoot and we could do overspeed intervals. Uh, so I started her with the 1% incline And then as we went in the interval, I took the incline down to zero and then got her to go a little bit faster than she would have outside. So we're training a faster rhythm and cadence into her legs so that when she does get a chance to do indoor track meet, she's not so detrained from the days that she had to take off um, from her injury. So this is a really good training tool. And it's a great time of year to be talking about it in late December. Because I asked her, I said, have you run on the treadmill before? Your university had an G, So an altergy is a treadmill like this that goes – 12 to 18 miles per hour, and it has a bubble of air that you zip into. And if you have an injury, it will lift you and unweight you. You can take up up to 80% of your body weight and run on that treadmill with like less uh, resistance and impact. She had done that, but most of those treadmills only go 12 miles per hour uh, because they're like a $25,000 treadmill. And the ones that go 18 miles per hour are about $75,000. So not many people go this fast on the treadmill basically due to budget so to to buy one from the YMCA which uh, thank you YMCA I can't say <laughs> they didn't want me to say because you, you're, you know, I have an LLC so I was able to do it but they basically resell their treadmills to you know uh, a reseller and I was like what are you selling them to him for this is a $12,000 treadmill and they told me I was like are you really you're you're basically giving that away to him I was like I'll pay you more for it uh, so I was able to get it and then experiment with it and again, no different than skateboarding. It's like, oh, let me see what I can do with this. You know, can I do a kickflip? Can I do a backflip? You know? And so I started messing with it and really pushing the limits of what I could do. And that's sort of how that four minute and then the two mile kind of came about. But the, the, the really difficult thing with treadmill running is just like getting in that flow state, letting your mind just sort of wander and not be too present. Because if you're watching the time click, it's like torture. It's right there in front of you and you're stuck there.
0: Yeah, that, that is the, the number one reason why I hate getting on the treadmill is I always feel like you're locked into every second of it. And so that's a really great thought about how you can positively use it both mentally and the, the training tips you just gave. Uh, we're going to link those videos, the mile and the two mile mile—in the show notes. And, and when people watch that two mile to what you said about the front end of the treadmill, it looks like there's about three times where you almost step off the front. You're ready to, to go off the thing because you're overstriding on it.
1: Yeah. So, you know, I'm really reaching, and really digging in because I can't kick and make my speed faster. Right. So when you put out a kick, a finishing kick in a race, you have faster cadence to dig. So all you can do on a treadmill is really open your stride and just use your quads and just try to power through. And so you're restricted in how far you can strive. But the, you know, the, the neat thing with running on a treadmill versus being outside, and there's very few people in the elite running community take the treadmill seriously. And I was, I was speaking on a different podcast with uh, one of the developers, he's a tech developer at Athlinks who writes a lot of the code for their websites and things and we were talking about integrating technology into running. We were gonna get into, you know, all the new shoes and like I'm wearing the sketchers that have the carbon fiber in them, uh, the, the Razor Elite and we were we we're gonna get into that, but we, we stayed mostly, you know, just on like using Strava and, and, you know, headphone wearing headphones when you run things like that. And there's a lot of running purists that think, you know, you gotta be outside with no headphones and no music and And what they don't realize is you're limiting yourself in that way and creating this little bubble of development that you can't move out of. So it's like someone playing acoustic guitar and being a a brilliant acoustic guitar player. But when you plug that in and you start playing electric guitar, there's a whole new realm of what can be done, like Eddie Van Halen or Jimi Hendrix. And so when you start using the technology... And you become a little bit of a futurist where you're like, okay, where can this go in the future? What if everything becomes like Beijing and there's air quality that's so bad that you literally can't run outside? What's the future of running? And for me, it was just how do I get better? Uh, I have permanent arthritis in my right foot that I've had since like 2010. And I'm like, well, I can't run in spikes as often. And I have to unweight not have a lot of impact on hard turf and you know wearing thin spikes so i have to get creative to be able to maintain my speed as i get older into my 40s so i use this as a tool whereas if you're if you're running without headphones you just use the spacious running at your own rhythm and pace and then you go on here this takes you out of that where you tend to sit back too much and not press and so the runner i had on here the other day she was forced out of her comfort zone and forced to maintain a cadence that she wouldn't normally do. So now I'm training in overspeed to get rid of this lazy rhythm that we tend to get into. Because, you, you know, if you run a 5K, you know, say you want to run uh, 1530, that'd be five flat pace basically each mile, right? So a lot of people will go like 450, see if they can maintain, and they'll slow down, and they'll end up running like 1535, right? And then some people will try to run right at five flats and they'll end up running 1535. Or some people are like, well, what if I go out slow and try negative split and they go out 510 they end up running 1535. Why do you end up running 1535 every time? Is it your VO2 max physiological limit, or are you stuck in a particular rhythm, right? You have this cadence that you tend to lope into and it's very strange. People don't think in terms of how our mind works. Do you set these rhythms internally? 1535, 1535, 1535. And you're sort of resonating No different than a stick being dragged through the mud and you're stuck in that groove that you've dragged through there. And if you're constantly training at the same paces and doing the same routine and you're not switching things up with alternative methods of training, um, are you going to still be in that groove? So you have to find ways to break out. And this was one way for me to do that. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. Very interesting. And I think we all find ourselves in ruts at certain times if we want to couch it maybe in a negative framework. But as you said, just a groove where where you trend toward this equilibrium of, I run my easy days at X pace. I race at X pace. And as much as we can find different skills, paces to work on, we may be able to break through
1: it's in my it's in my nature to do that and i'll give you a quick example please so a lot of coaches will have you run a time trial at the beginning of the season and then they base all your workout off of that vo2 max time trial or they'll have you do a vo2 max test and then all your paces are based off of that and even as a kid when i was 15 or 16 as a skateboarder jack daniels came to a camp that my coaches sent me to in high school and i had an argument with him you know, he gave his speech and I said, I'm pretty good, but you know, do you think I could be you know, better? Like, what do you think I could do? And he asked what my times were and he said, I wouldn't count on it. And I got really pissed off, (laughs) but I liked that he was honest. Right. And so fast forward to getting a VO two max done at the Olympic training center, I think around 2003 and Dathan Ritzenhein was there. And a lot of the top elite runners were there at the time. And it was the first time I'd ever run on that treadmill ever. So I was very scared and it was intimidating. And, um, I was running and my numbers were showing so well, they thought I was able to breathe through the mass or like something must be wrong. You know, cause I don't think my lactate was going up or something. So they stopped the test and then did it again. So which you're not supposed to do. And so I got, you know, a decent score and they told me what I should be able to run for 5K and you know, what my upper level times would be. So like 1335 or something like that. And I was like, that's wrong. That's not right. And they're like, no, no, no. Like, you know, these are the numbers. This is what your your VO2 max is saying. And I just knew instinctually that I could do much, much better. And so not only did I have to convince other people, I had to convince myself. So when I would go to workouts with my coach, George Watts, when I was at University of Tennessee, I was still post-collegiate training there. He'd give me paces to do, and I was like, let me do the first couple of intervals. Let me feel this and then it'd be two or three seconds faster per interval. And I was like, this is the, this is the pace right here. This is what I wanna do. And so I'd, I'd train up in speed, faster than the time I wanted to run, so that when I did race, I would be able to sort of settle into that PR pace that I wanted. So I was doing things very differently. And now things are more pushed in that direction, the way people train. But this is an extreme version of that with a treadmill, to get out of that groove. And can you, do we self limit? Yeah, with these tests? That's the question.
0: Right. We've talked about that here before, that we often create our own ceilings that really are artificial, that aren't there if we allow ourselves to be challenged and to explore greater heights. Uh, You're spot on with that. Now, to take this as an aside, you also recently put out a video of you going sub four with a dog running with you, and the dog's leash is wrapped around your waist. It's a great accomplishment, but I think it fits in this conversation more so as that different kind of stimulus you have going on there. You, you now have to run in a totally different way. And I, I'd love to hear you talk about what that was like compared to the treadmill, compared to normal running, and just the astonishing feat of running 359 with a dog
1: yeah we we probably could have gone faster than that that day too and that was the first time i'd ever done that i never practiced with a dog or anything someone had come into our store we have a we had a main street location here in mooresville north carolina and we sell apparel and reckless running apparel and someone came in as a customer and said i have this really fast dog we tend to run 5k's with her would you do a 5k with her because we really want to see how fast she can go we we're holding her back and i said well i'm not in 5k shape right now but i'll try a mile And I said, we need to kind of go point to point. So I found a perfectly flat greenway that we wheel measured just to see, like, you know, if we're going to do it, might as well be accurate. And, man, this dog just took off. And I was just dying laughing the whole time. This dog (laughs) just wanted to go, like, like a little kid, was just so happy to go fast. So we ran the 359. It was actually like a 358. And so I gave a little time on the video on the clock to make sure people could see me cross the starting line, see me cross the finish line, know it was legit. But there's supposedly people who've gone much faster than that, and I think they call it canine cross, canine cross, or something like that, with much bigger dogs, because that was a tiny little whippet uh, collie mix. And so she really wasn't pulling me that much. You know, we, she was kind of slowing down for me, so I really wasn't getting much of a tug. Uh, So if you did like a really big dog, some of these do like Weimaraners and stuff like that, it would probably be insane how fast you could go. But I, I would say the joy, more than like what it felt like to run fast or changing my stride, the joy that that dog had was this reminder of like why we run and to have that freedom to just take off. I've never seen somebody so happy than that dog running all out like that. So it was one of the funnest things I've ever done.
0: It's like when we go to recess as kids in school, when you're young, you look forward to it and you get out on the playground and you just go, right? You run or you you play a game or or shoot baskets, whatever it might be. Just that joy uh, of running. What were some of the responses, like the faces on people? Because there were a few people you went by in the park as you ran it like what what are you experiencing around you as you're running with this animal
1: um so i had a friend who wanted to film it with his drone and i remember he was going to be at the 800 mark and i just said look your drone's really loud like don't don't come low because you might scare us and if the dog darts off i don't want the dog to get hurt and then i wipe out too because we were really going fast so we're going by, and people are just like, holy crap, they're just shocked. And then some people are just laughing, like, go, 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 go. And then we get to the halfway point, and the drone comes down to, to film, and it's Zoosh. so the dog freaks out and then jumps off to the right or to the left and then back on. So we actually lost time, had to almost stop and then start again. And we ran, you know, a little bit extra distance doing that. And um, I was really worried for the dog, like, is she going to stop? What's she going to do? So it was sort of scary and on edge, but like really exciting and fun at the same time. So I was just making sure that like, I wasn't running in a way that the dog didn't want to go that fast. And the whole time, the dog's like, you're still here. I had this look on his face like, you're still here. It was really weird. Like the dog knew, like, I can't drop this guy. You're still here, so so go faster. (laughs) It was like, go a little faster. And I'd still be there. It's like, you're still here to go a little faster. That dog could have got a lot faster. But you think about it it's a whippet and you know they're a greyhound derivative so those dogs were bred to like it's in their dna like that kid from recess to just the recess and just take off or they see like a rabbit or whatever the stimulus is and it's just in their dna to go so the athletes i coach are training like amazingly they're peaked right now but they'll get to a race they get so nervous that they bomb a lot of times. The anxiety gets so high, they get an adrenaline dump. So I've been trying to like reinforce for them, like I'll show them the dog video. Like it should should feel like that. It should feel like recess where you get there, you're so happy to just be able to race. So um, we're gonna do a time trial for some of my kids tomorrow. And so we went there uh, Tuesday and we went to this area that we're gonna do uh, the time trial. So we're actually using downhill in this time trial because I want them to get over speed with less effort, similar to the treadmill, and train in more speed to get them out of that rhythm they're stuck in from their PRs early in the season so that when they race, that cadence is more ingrained in their legs to go out quicker and feel more comfortable settling settling into a faster pace. So to to not have them be so intimidated, I'm on a time trial on Saturday with a jogging stroller with my son in it. I'll pull it over here. And so I'm gonna try to go sub four pushing the stroller on Saturday. So this is, this is a Thule that's meant mostly to um, pull behind a bike. So it's more stable, it's lower to the ground. So it should have no problem going 15 miles per hour. The problem is my son is eight and he weighs 50 pounds now. So it's a lot heavier. And what is that weigh? I don't even know. It's pretty heavy. But the record, originally, I had a friend, it was a steeple chaser named Darren Shearer. He had run 359 pushing a baby in a stroller, which is pretty light. But it was a downhill mile in Colorado. So it didn't really count. Um, So knowing, you know, it wasn't a track mile or something, it counted as official. But I was like, I want my son to see what it feels like to go support pace with me while i can still do it and it'd be a fun thing to do with the kids there for them to see me do this before them i'll be ahead of them and i'm, I'm i was laughing testing out the stroller out there the other day just dying laughing like this and my son was like i was like were you scared he was no that no, was amazing though no, he, he had a great time he thought it was so fun so i'm gonna go out there and do that and push and do it on the downhill so i, I won't have you know all the weight resistance but it'd be interesting to see, like, if I could go sub four doing that, I'd just still be entertaining to watch. But again, like that childlike sort of, um, yeah. let's, I don't know, let's push the stroller. You want to, cause he just happened to be out there with me. I was pushing him around so I could coach and my son could be there. And I said, you want to try a 400? He said, like, sure. And I think I was like 62 and I was like, I think I could maybe do this, <laughs> but you have to find obviously a safe location. So it's a green way that is uh, about 1200 meters of downhill and then it flattens out at the end. So yeah, I'm, I'm always doing something like that. You know? So, you know, something to keep it interesting.
0: Well, and there's a lot of reminders there of this is the best part of our day on so many days. It's something that we should always look forward to and enjoy that ability to go out and whether it's sharing time with friends or now this year, maybe more of it's alone to, to just chase our dreams and to experience the limits of our body and test those limits. And you have such a wonderful attitude towards those pieces of the sport that it's not just about, I got to go PR all the time. There's a lot of other really worthy challenges that make this sport of running so wonderful. I want to change gears just a little bit. You know, 2020 has been a difficult year for all of us. You've dealt with some particular sadness as your father passed earlier this year. Uh, Shortly after his death, you you wrote something that I found really moving. You wrote about deciding to go back to New York City in 2005 to train alone without a coach so that you could be near your family. And that turned into an uber successful period in your career. I'd love for you to describe that decision to go back home and what your parents meant to your running career tied into that mental space that you got into when you were around people that you loved because you seem so honed in on the mental aspects of the sport. And I know there had to be a great connection there.
1: it's probably going to be different than what you think. Um, So 2020 has been the worst year of my life where my father passed away in March. Um, My best friend from high school, he passed away at 21 years old and his father had become a best friend to me. He passed away in September. And this time last year, December 2019, my mom was diagnosed with uh, early onset Alzheimer's, which has shown to be really aggressive. So she has pretty much forgot me just in this year like who's forgotten who I am and and what it exacerbated that was COVID because we couldn't go see her um you can't travel to see anybody and we didn't want to get her sick anyway so um not seeing her as often um I went to go see her as an early Christmas just you know and she had to have a, a wellness check that we had to be there for and um she thought I was her brother so It was interesting to deal with like who you think you are when your parents can't even remember who you are. You know what I mean? Like if if that's the most sacred of relationships with your mother um, and son, and that like just So when you see that kind of thing, and you have those experiences, like my friend passing away at 21, shaped me that when I did things, I tried to find the real substance in them. Like that joy that we were talking about, like why am I doing this, right? Because when he did pass away, his father, Bob, um, I had a race five days later and he said, go, you know, we're not going to, we'll just have a memorial. We're not going to do like a funeral. We'll just go, go do your race. And it was hard to race after he passed away when I was 21. Cause you know, last thing you want to do is go do your normal routine because everything seems a little less meaningful. So I did, I, I did okay in the race, but shortly after like a month later, um, his dad, Bob put his, his son's ashes in my shoes at the U S championship That was uh, 2001. I think I got second place. But, you know, jumping in the water pit and like the ashes were leaking out into the water. It was just a weird experience, you know. So those kind of things shaped how I experienced my running and why I was doing what I was doing. So I was a, a lot less bound up like most people are with very rigid of performance times and things like that. And when I was younger, I used running to get away from my parents. So cross country was my thing. They didn't come to practice. They didn't ask me anything about it. And I never let them come to any races. They never saw me race. So I really came home. And my mom's like, you won the county championship? I had to read it in the paper. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I didn't tell her. She's like, you made states? And so they they would come occasionally to the state meet, the championship meet. So I think my dad had only come to one cross-country race my entire life. That was a state meet in high school. And then my mom had only come to – like a state meet for track and one for cross country. And that was it. She never came to any of the college races. And then the only other race they came to was the Olympic trials in 2004 and then the Olympic games in 04. So those are the only times they ever saw me race in person. So it was sort of my thing. And it was a way for them to let me grow into my own independence. But it was also a way for me to be like, the faster I did and the more it reflected on them positively, like made me feel good that like look I'm going to pursue this to the highest degree so you can see that you know I can I was the black sheep of the family I was like accidentally setting things on fire at the home and like I will not go into this stuff that I was getting into just as a hellion so to be doing well to that level and to get a four-year college degree my sister was the first to get a college degree she got a two-year degree and they walked to college I'll never forget when I was graduating. My mom and my grandma's like, are you sure you're graduating? Like, are you you sure? Like, what do you mean by sure? Like, (laughs) here's the diploma. Like, you know what I mean? Like, that level of stuff. So in 2004, after I made my first team, I was like, okay, I've sort of solidified things. And this is what I'm going to do. And my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, was living in New York City. We had a long distance relationship for a good long time. I was like, we need to meet in one place. I was like, New York is the perfect place to do it. My grandparents were just across the bridge where I lived because I was on the Upper East Side. They lived in the Bronx. And so my family grew up in the Bronx. So I'd take the bus across to their house, like a 15-minute drive, and just go sit with them and you know, get to be with my grandparents, which was like very rare for me. And I'd just sit and watch baseball. My grandfather, he didn't care about running. He loved baseball. He wanted me to be a a baseball player because he was, I think, semi-pro. He got invited to play for the Phillies, but his family wouldn't let him do it. And then World War II broke out. So he played baseball with Bill Rizzuto and different people for the army during World War II. So they, you know, there was some history of athletics there, but nothing to this degree. So anything I did was just sort of like beyond what their expectations were for me. So to be up there in New York, my dad in 2001, when I graduated college, asked me to come up to New York City and take the apprentice test to be a steam fitter in new york because he was a, a foreman and you know a big guy he put all the piping and heating and ac and all these skyscrapers in new york he did a, a lot of trump's buildings i just envisioned myself like goodwill hunting just going in there and with my dad and my brother doing steam fitting and then building out a business to where we would develop our own you know pr- uh, personal small business to do that and expand and go out so i didn't have any anticipation to keep running because according to the VO2 max test, I was only supposed to be so good and I was already hitting that limit, right? So my expectation was, all right, let me get established here in New York and then start transitioning into being a steam fitter. But once I was like surrounded by family and got to see my brother at lunch at McDonald's at like Times Square in between, you know, working the skyscraper, I was sort of like, man, I don't really want to do that. <laughs> and running seemed to of a lot easier than what he's doing right now being like 50 floors up and like minus 30 you know, degree, whatever winds at, with no walls, like 50 stories up in some building. And I was like, this is easy. It's laid out for me. All I have to do is outrun these two guys right here. And, and I love to run anyway. So it was, it was a great experience to be around family like that and be able to see my mom go out to uh, Long Island and see my, my, sister, my sisters and my brother It's weird because they never really engaged my running in that way. And running is the greatest thing to, you know, just sort of brush up against to to toughen up um, psychologically and physically to mature. And so it was my way of getting past all the compulsions and impulsivities and negative behaviors that were limiting me when I had a coach come in and say, this is the way, like the Mandalorian, this is the way.
0: <laughs> I saw after your, after your father passed it, you took a, a cross country road trip earlier this year, and you described it as uh, somewhat of a, a mental and physical wellness reset. Do you tell us a little about the trip uh, and maybe some highlights and insights that came from that time? Yeah, so, um, uh...
1: I did sub four on treadmill in January of last year. And uh, I asked for a specific pair of Skechers, the Razor 3, because it was like the perfect shoe to do what I was doing. And I, I basically live in that shoe. So I signed a deal with Skechers. They were like shocked to see that in person. And because and, I had asked for the shoe at the expo that we were at. So every shoe company was there and I asked for their specifically. And they didn't want to give it to me because it was their only size 11. I was like, look, I'll give it back to you in three minutes, 59 seconds. So I wore they saw a person, they were like, we didn't understand what you were gonna do. They were like, holy cow. And I said, I can't do any more races right now. Everything's getting canceled, but I'm gonna take this road trip. And I wanted to just explore what it's like to be out and do fun things. So I ran like a mile Strava segment on Route 66 on like an out of the way motel where there's like nobody there. You're just in these old off the beaten path places. And I uh, went out to Utah. I did a mile through Monument Valley. Just, I try to put a Strava segment out there, but there's no satellite out there, so there may or may not be one. Through, right through the middle of Monument Valley, where where Forrest Gump ran, I ran like a 4:09 or le- faster. I don't know what it was. Uh, that was dangerous because there's cars like crazy. <laughs> so I just did that, but I did. Uh, I was kind of making fun of myself because, you know, I'm older and I'm you know trying to help pace my high school runners that I coach. So I got this mask that looks like an old man. And it looks really realistic. So I'd go around and do this stuff. And so people who were watching would be like, look at that old man. You know, I'd run the sub four or, or whatever time I was trying to run in the mask. So I was going around as this guy, I called the Dazzling Randazzo. I had this, uh, this band teacher in high school who would intentionally butcher my name. He was such a jerk. Man. He was like, the worst teacher I ever had. And that was his name. And in the morning announcements, he would uh, intentionally mess up my name. He'd say Anthony Famagugi, Anthony Famagaga when he had to, like, say what the race results were for the week before. And I got so pissed off that I would try to win back-to-back races in, the, in that weekend, so he'd have to say my name twice, and then have to say it every weekend. And eventually, one day, the principal came into the main office for the morning announcement and said, you say that young man's name correctly. <laughs> so it was a nice little homage to Mr. Randazzo. So I started this kind of Randazzo character to, just to try to lighten things up for COVID. You know, it's like the worst year ever. I got people dying in my family. I got like, I'm being forgotten by the people I love the most. And the only thing I have left is running. And so you see runners who get injured or sick and they can't run anymore. Then what you do? Because if you don't have running anymore. So I'm trying to build that out for myself too. Eventually I won't be the runner anymore. And I've always tried to disassociate from identifying as a runner anyway. I always did abstract painting in college and made electronic music just for hobby. And I do these huge abstract canvases. So I identified more as an artist and I would kind of ran on the side. So if you knew me in school and I was in your class in college, you had no idea I was on the track team. I would never mention it. I was just that guy from art class or... I always tried to split the two. Because if you identify yourself as a runner, and I see this with kids all the time who are a like high school runner all the time, and if they get hurt or they don't develop beyond a certain ability level, they don't make it past two or three years of college where they don't turn pro, their whole life is ruined because they didn't achieve what they were supposed to in their, in their mind. And you see it. They're bitter for the rest of their life. I mean, you know guys who are great high school collegiate runners. That didn't get the time that they know they could have gotten and they're still bitter about it to this day because they know they could have run and it's either a, an achilles injury or something like that so i'm trying to like find that path of of trying to pursue these things to the highest level but not being so wrapped up in them you've
0: had that experience like you
1: know performance yeah. like what level have you have you run to
0: yeah uh, you know i uh... I think you see it on, on both ends of the spectrum, both the, the person who becomes so wrapped up in their identity as a runner rather than who they are as a person and that value they have as a person, that failure in a race breaks them down. And then there's the, the flip side of people who at your age are reliving what they did in college 20 years ago as the greatest thing they ever achieved. And, and I suspect that you would look at your family, your business, your art, all these other things you have in your life that create a lot of meaning and balance. Finding that space, to me, seem, I, I don't want to call it a secret because the secret's out. We all should realize how significant it is. But actually doing that, processing it in our lives and having a bunch of things that mean a lot to us and more than one defining us. It's so, it's so valuable. And I've been consistently thinking this, Anthony, throughout our conversation here. I am heartened again and again, when I get this opportunity to talk to people who are elite level runners like yourself, and we see so many levels and, and so much depth and insight and, and goodness, kindness, and willingness to share. And so I think that 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 says a lot about what running can do for us as a culture, bigger than just athletes. It is maybe overstated, but it feels like somewhat of a sacred space where we can transcend the problems of, as you said, we have a pandemic. You've suffered loss this year that is... Incalculable to understand to be in someone else's shoes through that. We see people losing their jobs, people hungry, and it is just a sacred space where we can find connection with other like minded people who we might not even know that they are like minded until we get out on the trail, on the track, on the road with them.
1: It doesn't matter what country or what background, when you go for a run with someone, you don't have to say anything. It's this universal sort of experience. And I like what Zen Master Alan Watts had to say about it too, where you, you have a hand and then you know if you, if you give something to somebody, you're handing it to them, right? But you're not a hander. <laughs> yeah. And so when you run, um, you're running, but you're not a runner, right? Like when you try to identify as a runner, that's where things get modeled up and you start trying to stack in a hierarchy of who you're running with and what pace you're running. And how much time you've covered how much distance you do this week you start calculating look at the statistics and I think when diversifying your being by you know I play drums I I do paintings and all these different things I'm not so wrapped up in my identity being this runner it opens you up to when I first started running like local 5ks I'd come back for Christmas this exact time of year and I do this this thing called the Elfer Run in Mount Moore, North Carolina, where they run from the fire department out and back. And I came in and I was, you know, still elite. And I was like, I got to get a workout in, visit my wife and her parents. And I'd run, I try to break 14 minutes on this course, and these people were just shocked. But I spent time with them warming up. And then afterwards, and I said, Look, I want to take the veil of mystery away from what I just did there. <laughs> I'm not some special guy that you should be like, Wow, you know, like, can I have your like, No. I, you know, I train just like you guys, and this is how I do what I do. And and those out and back races, you they see you take off, but you get to see them all on the way back and you're waving and you're fist pumping and all that. That's the running experience because they didn't care so much about me winning. They can't relate to that time and that pace. They knew my effort. They knew what I was trying to do. And so to me, the person who's closing up the race last place or the last few people Are putting the same amount of effort or more than me. So, the relative effort there um, is what's important. When you take yourself out of like how you stack up and measuring yourself, take that bitterness away of what you achieved or didn't achieve, what you knew you were capable of or not, and just get back into it like that kid running for recess to the joy of doing what you're doing. And if it takes a dog to do that, a jogging stroller or a treadmill, then, then do that. And that's why I love these podcasts because. You know, most advertising and marketing with these brands is very performance driven. And you have like, you had like your Tiger Woods and your Lance Armstrongs, these perfect performers, flawless all the time. You know, th- those are who they market off. And that's not, that's nobody. That's extremely rare. And even they have had failure that they don't identify. Most of us have a hard time, even if it not just at first, most of the time, and we may not get to half our goals, if any of them. But that's not the point. And so podcasts like this will highlight why we all started running in the first place and hopefully bring you back to that. And I think you've done a good job of that.
0: The running experience, as you said, is so relatable across ability levels in a way that many other sports, but also some other aspects of life aren't. And, and that just adds to the beauty of that running experience. You recently tweeted Lots of people running time trials. And this is in the context of right now without our traditional sanctioned races happening very frequently. Uh, You added, when you master the solo time trial, you master yourself. Control the mind, control the body, control the pace. The mind is most often overlooked in training. Hone your confidence and never look back. I think that fits beautifully with a lot of what you've said today. I love the approach and I know that mental preparation has been a huge piece of your success. I would like to drill down on one thing there. Hone your confidence. Walk us through maybe some steps that you could recommend to anyone listening. Say, this is how we can build confidence. How has that evolved for you over the years?
1: So in in that particular tweet, I tweeted a reference of the 2008 Olympic trials where I led the race wire to wire completely. And um, I didn't just do that. It was that huge gap and I was just really going for it. And it was amazing because it was Hayward field and that's was like pre Fontaine's thing. And it was still that original Hayward field, green stadium. So it was a surreal experience to be doing that and have the clap, clou- the crowd so into it, like clapping along, like rhythmically. It's like the universe was sort of convening there. And in order to do that, and again, I'll bring up, say, Alan Watts, because I I, I listened to a lot of his teachings. He'll talk about Zen archery, where to, to hit the bullseye, like, perfectly on the mark, you can't be looking at the bullseye and be very tense and, like, let go, because you'll always miss the mark. You have to breathe out and then let go. And the trick to it, and it's very complicated, like, you have to... Um, not tell yourself when you're going to let go. It just has to happen like in a strange kind of way to run at a very high level and run in the front like that to reach your maximum, maximum effort is very similar where you're aiming for this bullseye, but it's in a way where you just, you've let go and you just sort of let it all flow out of you. And it's almost like you're not there. It's just all coming through you, you know, and painters will talk about that and musicians like, who improvise, like Miles Davis or Dizzy Gillespie, you listen to them and you can hear it. You just don't see it. And so like with Prefontaine, you were seeing that too. You're not really so enthralled with him. It's what he's channeling. And so before that race, Ryan Shea, who was a great marathoner, who had passed away at the Olympic trials that year, I'd stayed with him earlier in the year and had conversations, which I haven't even talked to a lot of people about. There was I'll, maybe i'll just say it here i had to had to run sedona arizona do we have time for this or we gotta wrap this yeah.
0: up no no go ahead time. yeah yeah we'll do that and then... yeah. and,
1: and and my apologies to his, his family i may have never mentioned this before but it, it really struck me it hit me hard because i'd done a very hard time trial in sedona by myself with solo effort and i let myself go there it's just the beauty of the place with the red rocks and it was just amazing i ran so hard i was on my hands and knees for a good while. And I was kind of scared because I forgot to tell people I was going out there. So I drove back up the mountain to Flagstaff and I left some food in the freezer at Ryan's house because I was staying at a dorm. I didn't have a fridge. And so I went and got some stuff to take out to the microwave. And he was mad because I had like frozen pizza in there, jalapeno poppers, mozzarella sticks. And he's got like on his on his counter, he counts his calories and he had like buffalo he's eating and elk that he would probably killed and all this healthy food. So I'm sitting there joking and, and ribbing him and ribbon uh, and I sat down and I was like, hey, man, I just had this run that um, I pushed it to the limit, limit, limit. And, you know, I was going over what it felt like and I was scared because my heart rate was so high. I couldn't get it to come down. And I was like, I thought it was, I thought it was time, man. I thought it was like I went too hard. And, and, he, and he goes, well, if there was a way to go, that's why I'd want to go. Yeah. He said that. And um, I remember someone was in the, in the room and yelled at us when we said that, like, don't say that kind of stuff. And so it was several months later, that same year, he ran the Olympic trials and he passed away five miles into the um, Olympic trials marathon. He had a heart attack and it was at Cat Hill in Central Park where I run every day because I was living in New York City. And so I'd run past that place every day. And it just was like this compounding feeling like, how do you have that conversation with someone and how does it manifest into that? it was very difficult for me because I wasn't sure I wanted to run anymore. I was scared, kind of scared after that, seeing that, you know, he didn't know he had that condition, that latent sort of heart condition. And to say that kind of thing is like, would would I want to go that way? Like, I don't know. You know? So we said that. It was beautiful that he did say that. And it was interesting that, you know, his life played out like it did. So I always would like sign the cross and I run by there, but I had to end up leaving New York because it was, different than, so I ended up leaving and going back to Knoxville, Tennessee to train for the 08 trials. I had to make a decision if I was going to keep doing this and if I was going to try to do it to that level, even knowing that and what the consequences were. And so I came to terms with that in a way that was, you know, very deep. I started getting more spiritual and sort of uh, making peace with whatever the consequences would be. And so I, I learned to just sort of let go and go into that place to the highest level where whatever the consequences are, even like to the extreme, this is who I am and this is what I'm doing right now, to be that present. And so I got to Olympic trials and I said that I was going to channel Ryan Shea and that I was going to channel Prefontaine. And I went and did this wire-to-wire race that was just insane. And I was so fast that I actually backed off the last lap and a half just to make sure I didn't fall off over the hurdles, just like slow down just to clear hurdles safely. And then when I was clearing, I just took off again. I was so in control. It was just insane. I've never had a race like that before. And after the fact, I, I told the interviewers, I was, channel a little Prefontaine. So what does that mean to channel channel that? I'm not necessarily channeling them. I'm channeling, channeling the spirit of what it is that they were after and what they were doing. and And it was, a way of just cleaning the window or as Ram Dass would say, polishing the mirror where you see clearly that the answers aren't all out there. They're already in here, but we cloud them with what we're after materially, whether it's fame, money, a fancy house, whatever it is, we tend to get caught up and we forget that the running is the thing. And it's not necessarily a thing, it's the method of re-identifying the thing. And so it's the thing, re-identifying the thing, re-identifying the thing. So you don't do yoga for the yoga, you do the yoga to hone the spiritual presence of who you are and remembering what it is that you are. And when you run the right way, sometimes you get a little peak, right? Did I just see that, right? And you have a better understanding of who we are. And that's why I think when you run the right way, it blurs the lines of differentiation, like you, you and me. There's no you and me anymore. There's just us.
0: Fama, a few quick questions here before we get you out. First, what do you think are some keys to staying both healthy and fast as a master's athlete?
1: You know, you got to balance your stress. So sleep is really important. You know, as you get older, your responsibilities get higher and higher and you're juggling career, work, um, just so many different things. And then obviously this year with COVID and other layers of health issues, you got you to gotta take your vitamin D. You got to take your vitamin C. You got to do it preventatively. You have to support your immune system with you know natural, clean foods as much as you can. I drink a lot of coffee now, and then there's arguments of whether coffee's good for you, coffee's bad for you. So you really have to do your research in what's good for you. I, I like to be able to investigate for myself and be able to come to my own conclusions of what's good because you say, are eggs good or bad? Well, you do. well have to say, say yes, have to say, say no, it's cheese good or bad, you know, it's coffee good or bad. So I think individually identifying what's healthy for you and seeing how you respond to things with trial and error. Some people are lactose intolerant, others aren't. So, so being honest with yourself, what's good for you and then balancing that with recovery and sleep is the biggest thing. And then, you know, the other main thing is maintenance. Like if you wanna run fast, you can't take five years off and just jump back in there. You gotta maintain that muscle memory and do the work for that. And then with diet, you know, obviously if you're eating the wrong stuff to excess, you're gonna put on pounds you don't need. It's strange for me to walk walk in the bathroom in the morning, brush my teeth and step on the scale and see 129, 130. And I'm not on a diet. I'm not doing anything. I just, my everyday daily routine that I've done since I'm a kid, I'm the same weight as my college race weight. Now, there's a little bit more like love handle here, like (laughs) a little bit more jowly here. But it's like, how am I still the same weight? Because my eating pattern is balanced. If I'm really hungry after a workout, I'll eat a lot, you know? But I'll eat like five small meals a day. I'm not eating a ton most of the time. So it's very specific to what I do on the day-to-day. But if you're running as hard as we do, sometimes you have to have dirty carbs. You have to have these extra calories so that your body's not taking things from the bone from minerals and nutrients, right? Especially with females. So pizza is good. <laughs> Does that
0: make sense? Uh, we've been huge fans of the Skechers performance line here on the show, uh, particularly the Razor. You ran the treadmill world record in the Razor, as you mentioned. What's your favorite model out right now, and what are you putting in a lot of miles in?
1: So the the Razor Elite came out just around Thanksgiving, and it's uh, basically the Razor 3 with a carbon fiber wing plate in there. And this shoe, um, you're only supposed to, like, work out and race in it. I wear it as an everyday trainer, and I actually walk around in a shoe. It's the most comfortable shoe I've ever worn in my life. And the way that the shoe is designed, it's the lasting, heel to toe. There's no awkward ergonomics to it. So it's the foot shape is just ridiculous, spot on. And then the weight of it is so light. It's like a bedroom slipper, but look how thick the cushioning is. So it protects underfoot from my arthritis. And then the carbon fiber plate gives the old man like me pop where I need it. But it protects my lower feet, my metatarsals. So you're going to avoid stress fractures. So when you get a high efficiency level of biomechanics, less is more. And obviously, you know, some of the Ethiopian Kenyan runners would would train without shoes and would would run like like most of their early life. But when you got to get sponsored, they have to start wearing shoes. (laughs) But this is, I think, the most perfect running shoe ever made. So this shoe has a very soft heel counter that is super ergonomic. So you get no rubbing and no pain. So this is... The first shoe I've ever worn in my entire life that has no hot spots, no pain. It's designed, I I just keep telling Kurt at Skechers that it's perfect. Just send me more. And (laughs) he made it like really easily light to the point where I I talked to him. Let me see if it's in here. I had a specific request. I requested the Razor Elite, right? But I said, can you put spikes on it?
0: Oh, yeah.
1: (laughs) So he put spikes on it for me. So that I could race on the track and try to go sub four on the track, because like I said, I have to wear this type of shoe now. I can't wear spikes. Traditionally, where they have that really thin, so this might get me to my sub four on the track this year after 40. Man, we'll see. The crazy thing with Skechers is um, you've got designers that have worked with the biggest brands in the world, and Skechers started a performance division. You're like Skechers, like they're known for, you know, style shoes and cool kids stuff. I was shocked at how well fitting their last is for the shoe. So that's the wooden insert that the shoes are crafted around. It's the best I've ever seen. I've wore Adi Dossler's original last from, most people don't know Adidas is named after Adi Dossler, who was an actual guy in the twenties and thirties was a shoe cobbler that made the brand. And so they, they were artists at what they did. Honestly, as an artist, I try to pay attention to that stuff and crafted shoes that didn't just have the shape of the shoe to fit people's feet like to perfection but functioned in a certain way and so a lot of american shoemakers had lasts that were curved because if you put your wet foot down on the ground it looked curved and all this nonsense because they didn't have as much experience these people who were actually like leather shoemakers they're just business people starting a brand now you have more last uh you know straight lasted curved lasted semi-curved brand to brand but sketchers for whether it's Kurt or whoever's you know, involved in that aspect of the shoes, there. And it's probably because, like, I went to go buy a new car the other day and I'm sitting in the dealership, and the guy's like, Oh, you wear Sketchers? I wear Sketchers because he <laughs> has to stand in those shoes and walk around all day. So they made shoes that feel ridiculously comfortable to work in and do day to day stuff. And so the performance shoes have that comfort aspect with the highest level of performance because they've got lightest materials. And so I was shocked when one of their reps gave me their stuff, like he's a local guy, like two and a half, two years ago. And he's like, hey, fam, you want to try a pair of these? Because people will just give me free stuff to just, you know, I'll give feedback like this. And I was like, "What? what is this? What is this foam? It feels like a shipping container foam. This is weird. I ran it I was like, holy cow. Like it was so cutting edge and different than traditional EVA foam. And I knew it was going to change the game. So that's, that's when I started being able to get back into trying the sub four thing again. So the designers and the design aspect is another reason that helps guys like me be able to keep going. Because if you're going to run the times that we run as elite athletes, it's just a matter of time that you're going to deteriorate running at those highest speeds. It's very stressful in the body. So having the right equipment long-term is very important. And so if it wasn't for Skechers, I would not be able to do any of the stuff I was doing on the treadmill to the degree that I am. So I'm very thankful for them. I would just tell people like, Sketchers are hard to get, like if you go to a store, you're not really going to see them frequently. So I would say if you, if you have someone that you have access to China, give them, a sh- give them a shot.
0: Yeah, yeah. so first the, that Razor Elite with the spike plate on it looks sick, so that'll be fun to see you race it and that on the track. I think they call
1: it a splat, so it's like a spike yeah. splat.
0: I'll vouch for, for the Razor Elite. I got my first spin in it yesterday in a workout, fantastic, featherweight as you said, poppy, And, and that hyperburst foam is, is fantastic stuff. I'll plug our presenting sponsor run in who carries Skechers stuff in the store. If you're a local in upstate South Carolina and want to check it out. Last one for you fam. Tell us about what you guys do with apparel at reckless running.
1: Thanks, man. If anybody's made it this far in the podcast, (laughs) we like two hours in. I started Reckless Running in 2009. I helped co-found it in 2009. Um, It was difficult. Like when I got a a foot injury and I got arthritis in my foot, it made it very difficult for me to find any shoe that worked properly. So I'm so thankful to have fine sketchers that worked that degree. So it was was very challenging. And it's like, if I can't find a shoe that works, how am I going to get a sponsor? Because everyone's a a shoemaker. And so the the way the rules are with the U.S. Olympic Committee, you have to, can only wear manufacturer's logo to compete in these major championship races. So I said, well, why don't I become a manufacturer? So I started reckless running apparel. And again, we took that edginess of the shredded wing foot. A lot of people, you might see that have it tattooed on them or people all over the world with that tattoo on them. And I just, it just, it encapsulates like the most iconic logo for running, but it, it also encapsulates the suffering it t- all the things that we've talked about. So the designs are, you know, edgy in that way. You know, a lot of people see the skull and it looks aggressive, but what they don't realize is like in Buddhism, you're trying to recognize impermanence. Your time is limited, man. You don't have much time. So get out there and get it done now. So we try to take all those um, concepts that we've talked about and graphically represent them. So if you go to recklessrunning.com, you can see it. And we custom make, hand cut and sew, Uh, racing singlets so you give us your dimensions on the site your chest what hem you want and you will have the perfect fitting racing singlet you can choose from the colorways and fabrics it's pretty
0: awesome we will we'll link that in the show notes as well thanks Uh, man
1: it's been a fun ride
0: it has been our pleasure i um you know, rarely do we have a multi-time Olympian come on and not talk about the Olympics, but so much of what you dove into really reflects and reveals how running connects to our humanity and our relationships with family and the, the pure joy and, and being willing to take risk in your running and in your racing and and those things we can all relate to and are, are so much bigger than any one or two or three performances we have on the track in our career. So I'm really thankful for you sharing your time and, and sharing those, those stories. Best wishes this year at age thanks. 42. And hopefully a sanctioned track event with a sub four mile is in your near future.
1: I always get the dog again, right?
0: <laughs> That's right. Fam, thanks so much. And, and best wishes. Thanks for the podcast, man. It's been fun. Call anytime. Our thanks again to Anthony for spending time with us. If you have show ideas, questions, or comments, please send us an email at secondsflatpodcast at gmail.com. Be well, and we'll see you in 2021.